Hello and welcome to Breakfast with the Boss, the podcast that discovers how our leaders went from the classroom to the boardroom and what it means to be the boss. I'm Natalie Campbell. And I'm Stuart Rose. And this week we're talking to the woman who has ruled the skies and our screens. Joining us for breakfast is CEO of ITV, Carolyn McCall. Carolyn was born in Bangalore and grew up in India and Singapore before going to boarding school in Derbyshire. After graduating from Kent University, she did a master's in politics. In 1986, she joined The Guardian and was swiftly taken under the wing of Carolyn Marland and Tip for Big Things. 20 years later, she became the CEO. Proving herself as one of the toughest operators in the business, she took over as the CEO of EasyJet, where she pulled the company out of a downward spiral and sent it soaring into the FTSE 100. At the beginning of 2018, she returned to her media roots to take up the challenge as CEO of ITV. Carolyn McCall, thank you very much for joining us for breakfast. Carolyn, what does a typical morning look like for you? There's no typical morning, I'm afraid. So when I was at EasyJet, I was either waking up at four in the morning to get a six o'clock flight to somewhere in Europe. Mm -hmm. And I would do that pretty regularly, probably every couple of weeks. Um, And then uh, other times I would be coming into London, as I do today with ITV. So I'm either getting up at six in the morning or 6.30 in the morning, or very, very early to catch a flight. So it's kind of not normal. And has it always been that way? So your childhood was divided between India, Singapore and the UK. Did you sit down around the table for breakfast? Um, take us back to your, your childhood mornings. Yeah. No, not really, actually, not breakfast. I don't remember breakfast at home. I just remember breakfast in school, which was pretty horrible. <laughs> but um, I, the things I remember about my childhood are really my my time with my parents, my holidays, where we would always eat together. So we'd go out together or we'd, I was an only child, so I would eat lunch with them and have a snack at supper or vice versa. So no, meal times were quite important with my family, but um, there's only small unit, but it was never breakfast. Breakfast was usually a cup of coffee. And and you were away at boarding school fairly young? Yeah, actually I was quite young and I was, I look back on that now and I kind of wonder, but my parents, I think, my mum really didn't want to send me to boarding school. And the reason she did was, one, I was in India, and two, she wanted me to go, she wanted me to have company. She wanted me to have, because I didn't have siblings, she wanted me to be surrounded by, and she didn't want me to be spoiled. That's what she tells me. <laughs> so I went to a boarding school at about the age of eight, which is quite young. I think when I look at my kids, I wouldn't That's really... incredibly young. Yeah. But the, interestingly, I never, ever felt... I mean, I did on the third day say, can I go home now? I thought I was on a picnic. I thought it was great fun for about three days. I did know some older girls, my family friends. Uh, And I went up to this, who's the head of house, and I said, I think I'm ready to go home now. Can I go and see my mum and dad? And they were kind of like, no, you've got another three weeks here before you can see your mum and dad. So it was quite hard that I remember that quite vividly. But they were, they visited and I went, I had long holidays and I remember my holidays a lot. And I was actually very happy in school. So I don't, you know, I, I wouldn't have sent my children, but I understand why my parents did it. And I never felt anything but secure. What did your parents do? My father uh, worked for an American, he was an engineer, he worked for an American company and he ran, he ended up rising through the ranks and running a large textile company for them. So um, for the whole of Asia, basically. So he traveled a lot. Um, and my mum worked actually, she used to work at the British Embassy in India until I was about four or five. 
And what impact do you think their career and your international um, childhood has, what impact do you think it's had on who you are now? Yeah, I think quite a lot, actually. And again, you only see that in retrospect. Mm -hmm. You never see that as it's happening. I think the, I am very adaptable and I am very open to change. Mm -hmm. And I also am very independent spirited. And I think all of those things come from having a solid background where you know your parents love and care about you and are doing the they they believe that was the right thing for me mm. and and I think they might have been right I won't know either way but but I also think traveling you know being away from Britain mm. it, it gives me a completely different perspective on the world I mean I've just never felt I'm very I feel very British I'm very proud to be from this country but I feel like my my horizons are very broad yeah. and that I understand and love different cultures and I love working in other places and traveling to other places. And it gives you that, it just gives you that interest and passion, I think. And that. did you know sort of fairly early on that you were gonna go on to university? Was that always your plan? No, no. And the, the other thing is my mum was a very, is a very, well, she's she's not with us now. I mean, she, she was a very highly intelligent and, but very unpushy, right? None of my parents pushed me. Mm. They would get cross with me if I didn't, do something that I could do yeah well so if I was slacking they'd kind of just shake their heads at me and roll their eyes but they wouldn't really nag me or stress out about exams and I, I remember my mum being incredibly pleased with my GCSE results because I had to do exams in India and then to get into school in Derbyshire I had to re I had to sit actual GCSEs in Singapore. So I had to go to wow. the international school in Singapore. And when these results came out, she was like, oh my God, you've done really well, haven't you? <laughs> That's really good. I was like, she was really surprised. So I was like, yeah, so so she wasn't, they but your never, dad, was that, was your dad slightly different? Or? Very laid back. No, I mean, very, I mean, he was a fantastic businessman, but not a tradition, not an archetypal businessman, not a go, go, go. So you where know, do you get your drive just, from? I have no idea. I think my mum was very driven, but for different, she just had a lot of energy. And I don't I have no idea. I don't know. I still, even despite, you know, having twins. So I had three children under two at one point, wow. which I have to say when I got pregnant and realized I was having twins, having not been able to have children, hmm. right? Not, not knowing I could have children and I had my twins after Dan, you know, I was like, oh my goodness, how am I gonna work? How am I gonna do this? I phoned my mom and she said, she was over the moon because she couldn't have any more children. And she said, it's a blink in your life. You will get over it. Just, you will sort it out. And you will just have to manage it. But don't give up work. Because I was already at The Guardian. I was already CEO by then of The Guardian and The Observer. Mm -hmm. And she was like, don't think you can't do it. Of course you can do it. It's just gonna be hard, but it's for a short time. But university, you went, did you know specifically what you wanted to read or you just wanted no, well, to go to university? The, re the reason I went to, Kent, I went to Kent University and I was really, really happy. I did politics degree there. Um, I did history and politics. But the re I was actually going to Sydney University and I had been accepted. Mm -hmm. And then two months before I was going, I was staying with my aunt and uncle. I have family in Australia. My mum said, no, no, this is a bad idea. I, you need to go to British University because, you know, British education's brilliant. Mm -hmm. That was very late. So I actually literally went into clearing to get into okay. university. Yeah. So off I went and honestly, it changed my life. I met my husband there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I met loads of very close friends. I'm still in touch with, you know, godparents to each other. Mm -hmm. 
it was really, really quite an amazing time. And I'm still connected with Kent. You know, both my husband and I do what you know do some stuff for them. So it was a very happy period in my life. So amazing in the turn of a pin. Um, you know, that's what happened. And I was actually doing English and history and then changed to history and politics, which again was just serendipity. Well, serendipity is an interesting word because I'd quite like to hear from you about how much of your career is subsequently was planned and how much was mm. serendipity, the subject yeah. which often comes up. Most definitely. Because, so you, you went from Kent straight into The Guardian as a planner? No, I went from Kent um, to do a master's degree at London University mm. where I did politics. Mm-hmm. And then I did a postgrad in education. Okay. Uh, and actually, I might have done a PGCE after Kent. Mm-hmm. So I did my postgrad in education after Kent, and I taught for a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I realised they were amalgamating all the schools in Ilia, as it was called there, mm-hmm. in London Education Authority, mm-hmm. and they were laying off all the best teachers, who were the oldest teachers, mm-hmm. and they were giving me jo- people like me jobs. Mm-hmm. I thought, I don't think this sounds very good. This is really a bad system. So I thought, get out of that. Mm-hmm. And then I did a master's in politics as a result mm. of what was happening in education. So I taught for a year in Holland Park, mixed comprehensive, ah, okay. and which was again very formative experience mm. um, for me. And then I went from doing my masters. I did that part time, worked at Costain, which is a civil engineering company. And then I realised that you had to be an engineer to get anywhere at Costain. And then I went to The Guardian. I just applied for a research job. Now, you were at The Guardian for quite a long time. Very long time. How long? Well, I was 20 years at The Guardian and The Observer. But so it was The Guardian. Then it became The Guardian and The Observer. Then it, And then I moved to the group for four so years. So tell us a little bit about the career progression, because uh, we come from a sort of similar-ish generation. I'm a bit older mm. than you. But you know, I went into a business where it was expected that you probably stayed there for a while and moved up. Mm. Of course, that people have changed these days, and they now move from place to place to get the next experience but yeah. did you plan your career did no. you arrive by did it go no. by serendipity how did you serendipity. move up what happened to you what were your breaks what it were your setbacks so weird i because as you so teaching mm-hmm. um civil engineer i risk analysis i was doing risk analysis so research was my background really yep. and i think that's where you get the politics and history comes in mm-hmm. so i d- d- did costume for two years love really enjoyed it actually and then the guardian and, you know, I walked in, I was a planner, I was in research, working for all the departments, really. Mm-hmm. And after three months, I remember being on the bus with my boss and saying, I don't really know what an SCC is yet, because a single column centimetre, I ought to have known that. I said, but I do know I want to be here for quite a long time. And she was like, well, why? She said, that's brilliant, but why? I said, I just really like the culture. It was a real meritocracy. I mean, honestly, they didn't care what level you were at, what color you were, what gender you were, no one cared. They just cared that you did a good job and that you were exceeding kind of what you were doing. You know, like if you- So what was this, early 80s? This was, yeah, it would have been, I was 86 actually. Not early, late 80s. And so what was brilliant about The Guardian for me is that um, I they moved me. I didn't move myself. <laughs> I didn't actually move myself. So I did two years in planning, roughly. And then my boss said to me, you should, you know, you should move into sales. Because mm-hmm. I'd done a course and I'd done a media business course. Do you remember the media business course? And you had to present. My, my group made me present. And I got offered a couple of jobs as a result of that. And that was, again, serendipity. Because as a researcher, you don't really do 
big presentations on a platform. You do small group. You've got other jobs within the business. Yes. Within, yeah. yeah. With a one was a post company and one was a TV company. And I and I came back and I was like, oh my god, you know, I've been offered these jobs, <laughs> and uh, they, they were all sales and marketing jobs, you know. And uh, they said, no, no, you don't need to do that. You need you can do that here. And I was I didn't want to move into sales. I was like, well, I'm a researcher. I'm a, I'm a I think you know. And they were going, yeah, but you can do both. You can, you know, you use all your skills from research and move into sales. And I thought sales was really glam. Mm. So I was like, oh, all they do is go out, chat to people and have lunch. It's not true, obviously. And anyway, I moved and they said, you can keep the car and you can keep the increase of in the money. So if you, if you don't like it, you can move back. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think you'll like it. And honestly, it just rocketed. I just loved it. I loved it because it was full of, you could train people, coach people, work really closely in teams. We seeing people like M&S, you know, you'd go out. I had to set up a client territory, nice. gave me a huge amount of experience. I'd work with the journalist, so the finance editor, the business editor, who actually was Alex Brummer at the time, who's now at the Mail. Um, he would cut, do dinners with me. I mean, I just got so much experience. So they you gave know? you the rope and, and you took it? I took it. But did and you think you were good? Did, did no. you have an innate sense oh, of, I, no idea. You know, I am No idea. No. Okay. I, do you know what I knew? Is that I liked it. Right. And that people liked what I was doing. Mm-hmm. So I was really had a great relationship with the sales team. I had a great relationship with my boss. And I had a really good relationship with the editorial department who um, I used to work and marketing. So I had good relationships across the Guardian. And I really liked the culture. I thought it was a fantastic. And so, I liked the cause. Yeah. Independent journalism, you know, brave bold you know. so people have sort of looked out for you if you like or looked for spotted talent you were in an organization which was talent spotting you obviously fitted the bill and people sort of made sure that you got the relevant experience do you use that today in your i do gosh i spot talent all the time i'm looking for it all the time and i'm i'm un, i'm not I'm unconventional sometimes in the way I will do that. So I can surprise I can surprise people who have a very process-oriented view of talent management or succession planning. Mm. So you know I have frequently double promoted someone, where I kind of say they are really really brilliant, uh, and you know instead of going one up, you put them two up and actually send a signal out saying, you know they're young and brilliant. You and can do this. You, and they can do this, mm-hmm. but also you need to embrace this because yeah. they're going to bring something to this team. So, uh, and I'm and I spend I would say at least fifteen to twenty percent of my time in any organisation I've been in has been about people. And were there any points along that journey where you thought actually this isn't great? Were there any moments where you you thought maybe so I've there made were a mistake? bumps along yeah. the road. I mean, I think you know I think the hardest thing for me at the Guardian was when I was the internal candidate for the Guardian Media Group job, mm-hmm. um, where I had a very strong chairman in Paul Miners and I had a strong chair of the trust in Liz Forgan. Mm-hmm. They both knew me very well. I'd sat on the group board for five years mm-hmm. as the CEO of the Guardian and the Observer and had delivered quite a lot. And then I was having to do this internal process, which was rigorous and intense. And it took four and a half months. Wow. And everyone kept saying, have you got the job? Have you got the job? When are you getting the job? Yeah, well, sort yeah. of 360 degree assessment full full assessment psychometrics huge process um, internal other internal candidates in the group all men obviously mm-hmm. um, external candidates quite high profile and it was it was that was really probably if I had to look back I'd say that was the most difficult 
uh, thing I had to do. Going back a little bit earlier than that, and I've never worked in media, but did you find as a woman moving into senior management, did you ever feel discriminated against? Did you ever find I've got to bash my way through this? Or did you find actually through having talent and moving on and being able to do a job that you just rose seamlessly? So on the external side, yes. So, you know, when you're dealing with clients and agencies, sometimes you'd come across a little bit of that. Um, I could I look back on some things I think, my God, you know, but but actually in The Guardian, no. So you would you could smash it, whether you're a man or a woman, mm-hmm. didn't matter. Um, the time I experienced quite a, a, an interesting thing was when I got on the group board because on the group board it was Guardian the Observer it was all the regional newspapers the Manchester Evening News and all of that lot mm-hmm. um, it was Auto Trader. it was um, you know very successful commercial business uh, it was radio um, etc so there were five or six or seven different businesses mm-hmm. and they were all quite you know interestingly quite macho yeah. men and that was the first time I found myself kind of having to speak out and speak up quite a lot. Do you think things have changed considerably? Um, I have interviewed a number of women that have either had a similar story to you, they've been in an organisation and they've just managed to get straight to the top because the culture was so open and when they have experienced either a barrier related to sort of sexism or racism, it has been external or they've been within an environment where they've just had to sort of Bash, bash against the wall on a daily basis. But it feels like the stories are getting worse and I'm hearing more and more of them. Whereas I can, I managed to secure a loan from a bank when I was 21 mm. I, and I built a business very early without really even understanding or, or knowing there were barriers there. And it's only now at this point in my career, I'm like, oh, there are some slight changes. No, look at that. I don't know whether it's getting worse mm-hmm. or whether it's just the same. It should have changed a lot, yeah, given yeah. how much profile this, there is around this, how much talk there is around this, you know. But I, I, I think it's still quite prevalent, mm. actually, probably. And so, and my way of therefore dealing with anything that was adverse to me was just to prove myself. Yeah, what I know is what I can do. Build the right network of people around you to support you, Mm. but also be resilient and know what you are good at and know what you can do. Because, you know, when I went into EasyJet, um, I just ignored, I didn't even read the press Mm. because people keep saying to me, oh my God, you know, people are so negative about you moving from GMG to aviation. You knew nothing about aviation. And that was true. I knew nothing about aviation. I knew a lot about business. Mm-hmm. I knew an awful lot about consumers. Yeah. And my perspective was, you know, when I did my diligence, the issues with EasyJet were operational, which I knew very little about, but I knew a lot of people there would have known about the operation. But their other issues were the people, the mm-hmm. crew were very, very, very unhappy, the pilots and the cabin crew, but mainly the pilots. And the customers were unbelievably unhappy because mm-hmm. no plane ever left on time. Yeah. So I thought, well, and the brand was in trouble. So I thought, well, actually, I know I can do those things. So it's knowing what you can do and then doing it and not allowing the noise to bring you down or to distract you or to try and respond to it. Because, you know, when you've got a lot of the newspapers going, what does she know, what does she know, what does she know? I mean, Peter Preston, actually, who's now sadly dead, wrote a column in The Observer saying, you know, 
don't underestimate her. She's She knows what she's doing and I've yeah. worked with her. And I was really touched about that because she, he didn't need to do that. Mm. But that was probably the, gl- the only glimmer of positive kind of uh, uh, media coverage. But I just thought I'd just ignore that because I, I just have to prove I can do it. So how did the move to EasyJet come and what prompted it? Were you a bit itchy-footed? Did it come by serendipity? Did, did you Were you getting so, to the stage where you thought, I'd like to try something else? What was the prompt? Because, as yes. I say, you were very successful. So I was really happy, and I actually wasn't looking to move because I'd done the job for four years, the GMG job, but we were selling the businesses. So I knew that it wasn't going to be GMG anymore, and I also knew that I'd done the, G, the Guardian and Observer job for five years before I moved to GMG. Mm. So I felt that... Uh, I wasn't looking, but I'd felt that probably in the next year or two after the four years, I probably ought to do something else. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been doing myself so any you were favors. mentally preparing yourself. I was in my head. I was kind of thinking, you know, I can't be here forever, much yeah. as I love it. Um, I think what then happened was out of the blue, I got a call from a search firm. And I thought they were joking. I thought it was a hoax call. <laughs> I, honestly, it was the middle of winter. It was December. I was looking at well, snow. on an airline. And they said, uh, you know, EastJet. And I went, hmm. Don't be daft. And she said, no, honestly, you know, come and have a cup of coffee with the chairman. And so when I had a coffee with him uh, and he described it and he questioned me and I described what I'd done, I knew I was walking in to a, I didn't know how bad it was, but, and I don't think Mike did either, but I knew it was going to be a tough gig. Mm. And he was quite open about Stelios and the issues with the shareholder um, relationships because Stelios at that time was suing EasyJet yeah. uh, about the brand so it was pretty you know difficult and I said yes because it was Mike Rake I said yes because it was exciting mm. but I knew it was a risk but the thing that de-risked it was I had known that he was a good chairman and that I'd seen him in action mm-hmm. at BITC so it's a funny thing yeah. because I think you know if you didn't know the chairman and you couldn't try, would, would I have said yes? You know, would I have actually taken that leap forward? Mm. And I look back and I think, although the first 18 months was just so hard. So yeah. how did you tackle the first three months that you arrived there? Tell, so, tell the listeners, how do you get stuck in? Well, I think that I did a lot of work before I started on the aviation industry. So I saw all the consultants who give you lots of free advice about what the industry is, what the dynamics are. They give you packs as, you know what they're like. They give you packs like this so that you can go through the economics of the industry. Mm. So I really, really, I met them all. I, I, I saw people that were um, attached to EasyJet or to the sector. And I was very lucky because actually Paul Miners put me in touch with um, uh, the chairman of BA at the time and also Michael Bishop who had mm. founded British Midland. And they both very kindly saw me and had a great chat with them and I continued to see Michael a couple of times in my tenure at EastJet and he was really interesting his insight and his perspectives were really interesting so I'd done quite a lot of that and I think that's really important I think being prepared before you walk into a new sector where everyone's judging you from the first second you walk in they worked out fairly soon you knew something you'd done well they knew yeah and then the second thing I did was that I had decided that I was going to get out and meet the people, that I was not going to sit in the hangar, and it really is an aircraft hangar in Luton, I was not going to sit in the hangar and get loads of PowerPoint presentations about the business, I was going to go out and see them all. And so on the first morning, I stood up in front of the Luton 
uh, people, which is the head office effectively. And there were about 500, 600 people in the canteen. And I just said, this is me. I've got kids. They support Chelsea. You know, uh, I've got, and everyone went, boo. And I, you know, and I said, and this is why I took the job and da da da. And then I said, and I'm getting straight on a plane now to go to Madrid. And then I'm going to go to Milan. And then I'm going to go to somewhere else. And then I'm going to go to Gatwick. So I literally spent my first four days on a plane going from one place to another and doing what they call first wave okay. which is the four o'clock in the morning start where all the crew are up because mm -hmm. they're doing their first wave and you go into the crew room and you get to meet loads of them mm -hmm. and you get you see them as they're doing their job and everywhere I went I'd stay a bit and then they could come and ask questions mm -hmm. and and tell me what was wrong yeah. and I can tell you I did that for my first couple of weeks I'd spend a couple of days in the hangar and three days on the on, in the air um, and I knew exactly what had to be done mm -hmm. to fix the airline by talking to them. It was so clear by, they all knew what the problems were, right? The customer issues, the fact that it was a scrum to get on the plane, that people were stressed beyond beliefs, that's where allocated seating comes from. Yeah. You know, the fact that the crew were being treated quite badly, you know, they were not being valued, they so were because not being spoken to. Because you were the chief executive, is the phrase I use sometimes, it didn't mean you had exclusivity of good ideas. None. You went out there and asked the people, and yeah. we're not here to talk Amazing. about me or Marks and Spencer, but in the same, same sort of way when I went back to M&S, I asked the staff what the problems were, they gave me all the answers. You, you get the answers from them. So you won't get the corporate strategy, yeah. either financial strategy, but you absolutely get the business yeah. strategy because, you know, you will get what is wrong, fundamentally wrong that you have to fix before you can do any of the other stuff. So How did you syndicate that back to them? You, you gathered in all this information. Yeah. How did you get them to adopt your plan and so, then get them to deal with it? Yeah, good question. So we put, I, I did collate all of that. And then we, when we did the strategy, I had three months to come up with a kind of new strategy, which really from a shareholder perspective was about growth because it costs money to buy aircraft. It's very expensive, CapEx. So, um, but then underneath that, the growth relies on customers. Yes. So the key to unlocking value at EastJet was to get your customers to love you, to like you, to prefer you, to choose you, uh, and to feel good about that choice. And you, we had to fix the operation first, so the on-time performance had got had to go up to 80%, it was 40%, 45% when I joined. Yeah. Um, we had to make the crew feel good about what they did because they are your front line with your customers. So we put a lot of effort into the management of the crew, we put resources into it. We increased the number of crews because we didn't have enough crew to fly the aircraft. Literally on the literally plane, number eight, of, yeah. Literally eight planes were grounded when I got to EasyJet. No, we, in the peak summer, very expensive. So just, you know, really putting the customer at the center and saying, and then doing a lot more on digital. So yeah. how we communicate the app, the app making is it easy yeah. for people. Um, but your on-time departure said started going up. Did yes. you tell the customers that about that, or did, was it word of mouth suddently? No, easy you just getting tell better? them all the time. So no, you, you were you, talking yeah, to them. So I would do a letter in the magazine. I started that. I would do emails. So through CRM, so we really developed our data and mm. CRM capability so we could communicate with people. So we'd have communities of customers because we could see who were the most loyal. Um, we introduced a loyalty program called Flight Club. So we just, over the years, you know, just added and added. we went after business passengers. Yeah. We made a very big thing about once the punctuality was right, we could start targeting business passengers. So we did that with some real vigor 
and with real success 20% of EasyJet passengers roughly are business passengers flying on business so we're just once you fix the operation then you have a kind of foundation yeah. to go and do all these other things. And allocated seating, we could not have done mm-hmm. without the operation being fixed. Stuart, from the outside looking in, what were you thinking when you saw, first of all, that Carolyn was leaving um, the group and moving to EasyJet, and then when you started to see things change? I, I wasn't surprised. I think it was a fantastic move, if I might say so, by the board of EasyJet yeah. to recognise they shouldn't go... When a company gets into trouble, the easiest thing sometimes they do is they they get more of the same. They stay right. within the industry. Quite often, coming out of the industry is exactly the right thing to do. Woman, mm-hmm. different decision. background, mm-hmm. customer focused, customer centric. Let's give it a different way of looking at it. And I think it was a brilliant. I think it was I think Mike Rake and the board were very very, brave. very uh, not brave, brave. I think they were very in- insightful. Well, I think it was brave because I would say I had been done a you know I had loved my Guardian years. And GMG was really good for me. But I I did think at the end of GMG, and I did talk to you uh, about it, I said I I wanted to try to work for a public company because I'd never done a FTSE. And actually the move from a private company, because even though GMG was run like a PLC, it was a private company owned by a trust. It's a big step. And it it was a very, very big step. So to have to take a step into a new sector in a FTSE 100 with all the scrutiny that comes with that and the quarterly reporting. So how do you deal with stress, self-doubt, am I going the right Mm. way? How do you relieve that pressure? How do you confirm to yourself that actually what you were doing is right? Do you go externally? Yeah, no, this is where I do think mentors are really important. I mean, I do remember um, talking to a couple of people outside who you know, who I trusted implicitly and saying, you know, I, you know, what am I going to do? I've got this, I've got 36% of the vote against. And, you know, we've got hot, you know, such a tough environment. There was oil price hike, there was, mm. it was just the volcano aftermath. There was, you know, there were just so many things that were wrong in the first six months. External factors, that's the thing about airlines, yeah. external factors are huge. Um, and, you know, I just felt really beginning to feel very squeezed about the room to manoeuvre to actually get the strategy going. Um, and uh, and then there was speculation about EasyJet being taken over, private equity running their ruler over us, you know. So in the end, the way I deal with that is just talking to people who have the, had the knocks and the bruises and the hard yards themselves. Because leadership is lonely. Well, it's very lonely uh, when you're a CEO because you can't talk to anybody internally. You talk to your CFO, and I did have a very trusted relationship with him. But other than that, there's nobody else that gives can give you perspective. So I am somebody, I am very, I listen. I'm a, you know, I will listen and I will absorb advice and I will mull it over and then think, do I agree or don't I agree? But that was invaluable to me in my first, well, all the way through actually, but certainly in the tough times. And so the tide started to turn mm. and then an opportunity came up to join ITV. Talk yes, but before the that. tide turned, we had some amazing moments at EasyJet. Mm-hmm. And I would say one thing I wish I'd done is enjoy those highs more. Yeah. You know, when they're happening, you kind of go, you know, oh, it's like FTSE 100. We got into the FTSE 100. When I joined EasyJet, it wasn't in the FTSE 100. Mm. And when we got in, do you know, literally we all walked in and we all just smiled at each other and got on with our work. <laughs> nothing. No celebration, yeah. no lunch, no dinner, yeah. nothing. Yeah. You know, we just kind of went, okay, great, let's move on. And other things that, you know, the other things we did well, you know, when we hit, we hit 
peak profit at EastJet in 2015, I think it was, um, pre-Brexit, mm-hmm. um, when we made about £880 million. Unbelievable. I must see if I've got that number right. It might not have been 880, but it was a, a big, big, big number. And we didn't really market in any way. You know, it's those, we won lots of really great awards, that Did kind you of personally market, though? Was there a point where you thought, OK, like, I am? Not really. No. No. So, obviously, I think I know the answer to the question. Eight years, eight and a half years at EasyJet. Eight years, yeah. Eight years at EasyJet. More fun than less fun? More fun, yeah. No, I loved it. I, I loved it. And I am probably will always be incredibly proud of the people at EasyJet for doing what we did in that eight years, which was to really transform the customer experience and to really make it, you know, it's a hard thing to do when you're a low-cost airline, to be warm and friendly and thoughtful about customers. It's a hard thing to do. but And to do it, and to do it consistently, is where we kind of got to. And I think it's, you can see from other airlines today how hard that is. You know, when you look at what's going on today, um, that's a hard thing to do. So much more fun than less. So let's move on. Suddenly, they pop up at ITV. How did that come about? Another phone call, just saying we're doing a process and would you like a cup of coffee? And I initially said, no, don't worry. And the reason I said, no, don't worry, is I just kind of thought, well, you know, I thought after very hard, nearly eight years at EasyJet, you know, it's operationally intense. You're on call all the time. My phone was never off. Um, you can't ever have your phone off as a CEO of an airline um, for, for obvious reasons. And I just thought, you know, I'd quite like a break. So I was actually going to resign without anything to go to. And then I got, again, you know, oh, we'll just come and have a cup of coffee. And I ended <laughs> That's up... That's a seductive line, isn't I it? Know, just, and, I, and again, the irony is I, I had met the chairman of EasyJet um, through Endemol when GMG owned half of Endemol. So I didn't know him very well. But I did know him. And so I thought it would be quite, you know, nice to have a chat and to talk about media again. So we had a chat two and a half hours later. You know, I just thought, God, this is really interesting because it's intellectually quite challenging, actually, given what's going on in the world around us Mm. uh, and consumption habits of of, um, content programs. Um, So it, it just went from there. You know, it just went after that. I just got drawn in I got more interested and I got I just thought well actually it is time for you I I knew you know I I never wanted to be a CEO that overstayed I wanted to leave when they wanted me to stay yeah I think that's a very good piece of advice to give Mm. Mm. interestingly you left an organization that was operating in a space that was expanding i.e. people want low-cost travel travel yeah. is expanding yeah, yeah. Growth, growth business. you've gone to an industry now where you've got sort of traditional media and you've got digital you've got disintermediation you've got channel shift you've got scale and you've gone if i might say so to an organization which is the smaller end of scale where you've got a lot of big digital players out there so how did you tackle that challenge or so did that frighten you i think people underestimate itv and i think that what you've just said is exactly what we need to shift because stereotypical it right? has not got global scale it's got global scale in production i.e making programs yeah. but it is massive in the uk and actually it's studios business has got the largest unscripted production business in the world really? yeah so it's very underestimated itv in that regard because people just take it as given and it's not a legacy business because it has 
loads of digital net channels. So ITV two to four are digital channels mm. and the hub is a digital platform. And that's where we're going to be investing a lot of our money going forward. But we're also investing money in programming yeah. for the channels because that's what we can make money out of, not just from advertising, but from selling those programs right around the world. So actually, um, I don't, it is of course a interesting and dynamic market and it's changing rapidly, but that's what makes it interesting to me. People at ITV are incredibly proud of the role they play in society, the fact they reach millions and millions of people. I mean, every day we're reaching millions of people. So Coronation Street, eight to nine million viewers, you know, Britain's Got Talent, X Factor, they're all reaching millions of people every single day. So it's, it's a, it is a scale business and it is very energizing actually and inspiring to see what we do every day. It's a very creative business and it's very much part of British democracy, culture and society. We can help influence society for the better. Yeah. So whether it's behavior change when it comes to food and eating habits, or whether it's about, you know, we can we can do a lot of, of stuff. So I, I think that's really quite, that's a great cause. It's a very clear purpose. Take us back to day one, day one of ITV. ITV. So I did a similar thing. I mean, it worked. I just thought on my first day, I've just got to meet as many people as possible. So I met the senior leadership team, which is the 180 people. Yeah. And I just did a stand up. I just stood up and said why I joined ITV and what my background was. And then I took a load of questions mm. and uh, it was just an hour. But I think, and it was tele, so it was televised, obviously being telly. Mm -hmm. It was broadcast to the whole network around the world. Um, and I got so much feedback about that. So many people were just like, thank you so much for talking to us on your first day. We weren't expecting that, you know. And I think my way is really to constantly communicate. And it is different to a directly consumer facing business, right? Because you can talk, you know, you, I could talk to you and you'll view bits of our, your, our programming, you'll have watched some of our drama, and you'll have maybe watched some of our entertainment and drama, sports, whatever. But it's not like walking to an airport and just yeah. being able to walk up to people and Touch say, and feel it. how is it, right? Mm -hmm. So it is different. Mm -hmm. And I've had to adapt to that because I'm naturally inclined towards talking to customers. Yeah right so um that's quite interesting that's an interesting shift for me but i still come at things from a consumer perspective rather than from a what we do perspective because we have viewers and customers and they're not the same thing you know we're trying to make more of our viewers customers yeah. so that's quite an interesting transformation so i, I would say at itv it's not a fixing job it's it's, it's operation is good the, the financial platform is good it's about transforming it for so that in five years it is in a strong position for the future. And what excites you most about the opportunity of ITV? Ensuring that ITV can compete and continue with its purpose, which is to be utterly part of the fabric of Britain and to add, it adds to people's lives. You know, if ITV didn't exist, people would be very, very sad. Yes. You know, it'd be really, really upset. And their lives would be slightly less fulfilled in a way, you know, because of the pro it's all about programming. So I think it's to make, to nurture that programming, to really put that at the heart and actually to think about it from the viewer and customer perspective, make sure we're giving them what they really like. So can I ask you just a, a little a different question towards it? Here you are, 
Um, people will be listening to this. I know a lot of people in Speakers for Schools will listen to this. Uh, I know you are heavily involved with Speakers for School yourself. You've got teenage children. I do. You said that uh, you started off your life with your parents not telling you what to do, but you had a good, solid family background. Mm. What advice would you give to people listening to this who are starting out in life thinking about what to do? They look at you, you're iconic, you're a woman, you've been immensely successful. You know, Tell them a little bit about how they should go about it but more importantly perhaps and you may not it may never have happened to you but have you had the odd knockback have you had failures have you had yes. moments of self-doubt how do yes. they have to deal with it or they just look God. at this exceptional woman and say no. i'll never be like that no i look i think that early days you can't expect to walk into something that you know you're going to love mm. so i think that kids should take some time to try different things and for me, the most important thing is to find a culture and a, and, a, and, a, and a job they like. But it, the culture, I think, is as important as the job. Kids should experiment. They shouldn't expect to just find something like that, you know, really quickly, and then worry that they're not happy. Because it can take time yeah. to find what you want to do. And I think the second thing is to, to always ask advice, you know, to, to use other people as sounding boards as you go through. I think that's really important because no one has all the answers to anything and no one has an easy run. You've mentioned boards a lot um, over the course of the podcast and we ask all of our guests this. If you could invite one person from history to join your board, who would they be and why? Um, do you know, I could say a great historical figure because I did history, so I could easily do that. Yeah. But I think that wouldn't be very helpful. I would actually have Christine Lagarde on my board. Mm. I think she's stunning. I mean, I, I heard her speak recently in the summer. And uh, the reason I'd have her on is because she is uh, really clever. And she's br she's financial, but she's she understands business and the economy and the dynamics of world economies. Yeah. And she is able to talk about those in an extremely accessible way. So she's highly intelligent, but she doesn't come across as being, you know, opaque. Yeah. Right? You can understand her. Yeah. I think she and Mark Carney have that in common. Mm -hmm. And I like her a lot because she's stylish. I mean, she wore beautiful shorts to this meeting. I've never, I've never met a British businesswoman <laughs> in, in short or politician yeah. come to a meeting in linen shorts and a linen jacket. She just, she's just quite distinctive, but also incredibly smart and very accessible. Yeah. Carolyn McCall, thank you very much for having breakfast with us. Pleasure, thank you. Thank you for listening to Breakfast with the Boss. It was recorded at Fleet Street Studio with Vox Media Limited. For links to all our other episodes, follow us on Twitter at Breakfast with the Boss, or if you hit subscribe, you'll never miss an episode again. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>